good morning. Glad to see you here. Um, let me uh, start with this, this question. Anybody ever tried to avoid someone or something ever in your entire life? Happens to me, like, I, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say this. Almost every time I go out in public or like to Walmart or the mall or Kroger or something, and you can relate, I'm sure you can. So you're pushing your car and all of a sudden you see somebody and you're like, man, I don't have an hour. <laughs> like, they're going to talk to me for an hour. I'd rather just like not. I got to get some places. My wife, she's given me permission to share this. She'll actually go to Walmart. She sees somebody like on the food side. She'll go to the other side of the building and do her shopping over here, hoping that by the time she gets back to the food, they'll be gone and she won't have to... It's terrible that we do that, don't we? Don't we try to avoid certain people, maybe because there's a damaged relationship. You two just don't see eye to eye. There's some history there. Or maybe they're just a talker and you don't have the time. Whatever it is, we do this and we get this. It's part of our kind of nature. We try to hide or avoid some things. Now, there's a story in the Bible we're about to get to um, that I, I love reading. And I hate reading. <laughs> Can anybody relate? I really do not like to sit down and read. It's just not something I enjoy. But then when I read stories like this, I kind of like reading. I'm like, man, this story is so good, so powerful. And it's one of my favorites in the Bible. And it's John, it's in John, excuse me, it's in John chapter 4. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn to John 4, please do. We're going to read the whole entire chapter. And it's the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. You may be familiar with it, but if not, we're going to read the entire story and go through it. If you've got a smartphone, you can pull that out and use the Bible app, whatever. Stay off Facebook, okay, right? I think in the Bible it says, thou shalt not get on Facebook in church. I, I think it might be in there. I'm not sure, but if you guys want to get on your smartphone, you can. John 4, here we go. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Pause for a second. There's a lot going on politically here between Jesus's ministry and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of that time. You see, he was gaining a following. Jesus was gaining a huge following. And the Pharisees, religious leaders, didn't like that because that meant that they weren't following them anymore. They were following Jesus. And there's this rift between the Pharisees and Jesus that's starting. It's only John 4, okay? This is early in Jesus's life and ministry. Jesus is going to deal with the Pharisees later, okay? He's going to talk with them. He's going to uh, kind of offend them. He's going to really kind of go head-to-head -head with the Pharisees later on, but he can't do that right now. He has to go somewhere. He's going back to Galilee. And our story really starts here with these four words in verse 4. Now he had to go. He had to go through Samaria. Okay, why did Jesus have to go through some, uh, to Samaria? Anytime I see in the Bible where Jesus had to do something, I want to pay close attention to because he's the son of God. He's God in human form. He's God in human flesh. He doesn't have to do anything. He's God. So when I see that he has to do something, I want to laser focus in and see exactly what it is he had to do. If God has a to-do list for his son Jesus, there's one thing on Jesus' to-do list that he's got to check off that he has to do today on his way back to Galilee. And I want to see this because what I believe, the way in which Jesus dealt with people back then in these stories in the Bible when he was alive, the same way Jesus interacted and the same thing that he did in the people's lives then is the same thing he'll do in your and I lives today, your, your life and my life today. So I want to pull the parallel of what he has to do, what is so important that Jesus had to go to Samaria for. And it says this, verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sitkar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. 
And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. This is what Jesus had to do today. He had to go to Samaria, to this town of Sychar, and, 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 and find a seat at this well Okay, at noon when this woman was about to approach. Now, the significance about it being noon is this. Okay? The way in which culture worked back then, and it still functions that way in some third world countries where they don't have infrastructure for sewage and water to have clean water, there's one source of water for the village or the town. Like if you go to Haiti, you'll see this. Okay, and it's hot in Haiti. It's hot in, 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 in Sitkar too, in Samaria. It's hot. So what would happen is, is, is you would get your water in the, in the early dawn of morning. Okay? You, would, you would wake up early before it was even light out, and you would stand in line, and, and you would get your water, you would get your water, and they would just keep going through the line, and you would get enough water to take your family through the day. And then in the evening time rolls around, once the sun has gone back down and things have cooled off, you come back to get a new supply to get you through the night. That's how it worked back then. You don't go to the well at noon. It is way too hot at noon. It's too hot to carry that water. I mean, you would need a camelback to be feeding yourself water because you'd be dehydrated just from carrying that much water in that kind of temperature. You did not go to the well at noon. It's too hot at noon. So why is this woman there? And my bet is is she's avoiding something. Maybe she's avoiding someone. Maybe she's shopping on the other side of Walmart. Maybe she's darting around aisles avoiding people because she doesn't want to have that confrontation or that conversation or she doesn't want people to find out about her. You see, because around that well, even in Haiti or even back then, that was the news source for the community. That's when everybody gathered to get their water. All the women were in line. And you know how like women like to talk, man. They would just gab, 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 gossip, gossip, gossip. It's basically like, and I'm sorry, I'm not offending women. Men like to gossip too. I do too. I enjoy it. I hear some like, that's juicy. All right. But that's what happened back then is, is they would just talk and talk and talk in those lines at the well. And guess what? This woman was probably the source of the news far too often. She was the tabloid headline over and over and over again, and she was tired of when she would walk up, people would start whispering. They would, they would have the eye rolls, they would give her that glare and that stare, and she just got tired of being the source. It's like Facebook today, right? You know, we go to Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, whatever, to find out what's going on in the world, what's going on with our friends, what's going on in our community around us. It's the same concept back then. It's where they went, it's where they did community, it's where they found out their informa- information. And she's tired of being the headline. She's tired of being the conversation, the confrontation, the reason for the news. And this is what Jesus had to do today. This is the one checkbox he had to mark off was to sit at this well and ask this woman for a drink. And that question to this woman, her life is never going to be the same after this conversation with Jesus. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The race card is played so hard right here. She says, hold up, you can't talk to me. Our, our two groups of people, we don't get along. This is so inappropriate culturally and societally. Uh-uh, putting up the red flags. How dare you ask me for a drink? The race card is played heavily. And this race card has been, being, been, been played for about 500 and some years up to this point. If you go back to 722 B.C., there's a great history lesson. I don't have time to go there. I didn't know, self-disclaimer, I didn't know why Jews and Samaritans hated each other. I didn't. I heard it my whole life growing up in church. I knew there was this division, but I really didn't fully understand. 
So then I went and did some study. And I don't really, I don't like reading. You know that. But I had to go find out. I had to go find out. I challenge you to go find out if you don't know why the Jews and Samaritans don't like each other. But here's a quick overview. Okay? The Israelites, God's chosen people, got divided north and south. Okay? The northern Jews, okay, they claimed, they were, or they made a vow to stay Jewish, pure Jewish. They would marry inside the bloodline. They would keep one God. They would follow all the commands exactly as they were written from Moses. They were going to be the pure Jews, so to speak. Now, the southern Jews, they got intermixed with so many different nations and cultures that they started to intermarry. They said, oh, she's pretty cute. It <laughs> don't matter about if she's Jewish or not. He's good looking. I don't care if she's Jewish or he's Jewish or not. So now they start to marry outside of the bloodline, the Jewish race. And now they get this intermingling. And now they have different gods and different idols and different laws and different rules. And, and it just becomes like a hodgepodge. The northern Jewish people, okay, they were calling them half-breeds. They were claiming that you have messed up the religion of God. You've messed up the bloodline of God. You've messed up the people of God. And that's where the division started. And it's been going on ever since up to this point for over five years. You understand why there's some tension there. You understand there's been a history, a long time history of why these two groups of people don't like each other. The race card is played. This shouldn't be happening. This conversation should not be happening, but it is. Now there's another card that's being played that the woman's not even aware of. You see a, a rabbi, Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. A rabbi would not talk to a woman. Okay. In public. He would not talk to a woman in public. It was part of their, it was just what they did. It was their, their norm and their expectation. A good rabbi wouldn't even talk to his own wife in public. Some of you are like, I married a rabbi. He don't ever talk to me. He just grunts a little bit. But he's just a man of many words. That's what we are. We're men of many words, okay? But yeah, there's another card being played. Like he would not be talking to a woman in public. Every, every societal expectation, every card, every barrier, every norm and stereotype of that day is being shattered because of this interaction, this conversation between this woman and Jesus. It's crazy. I love this story. And she knows that this is inappropriate. Jesus knows this is inappropriate. But guess what? This is what he had to do. This is why he had to go to this town and sit at this well. And this woman approaches him at noon. It's what he had to do. And Jesus answered her after she gets like, hey, you shouldn't be talking to me. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And when, Je- when Jesus says woman, it's very polite. It's, it's how they just, you know, and, and I'm, I'm going to use the phrase woman just to refer to her in the story. Woman, if you knew what I was offering, Jesus is saying, if you understood what was at stake by you having this conversation with me, you wouldn't be asking me just for a, a drink from this well. You would be asking me for living water. And you might have heard the term living water, and you might think it's just a spiritual term. But really, it was a term they used quite often back then to describe a, a type of water. You see, most of their water sources came from still water, like a well or a cistern. It would look like clay. It would probably taste a little bit like clay. I mean, it was potable. You could fill it up in a thing and you could drink it. It was safe and it would do for your family. But living water in their culture was a stream, man, that was moving, was a spring that was bubbling up, man. It was good, clean, fresh, cold, crisp mountain water. That's what living water was to them. So she's familiar with that phrase of living water water. And she's going to play along. She's like, okay, all right, you're going to give me some of the good water, right? She plays along. And she's used to talking to strange men. She's used to engaging in conversation with, with strange men. It's been, it's been part of her past. It's been part of her story. It's been part of her life up until this 
point, she's gotten kind of kind of good at it, actually. And I'm not sure of her motivations in her response to Jesus. Maybe a little bit sarcastic, maybe a little flirtatious, or maybe she's just flat out curious. You be the judge. And she replies, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water, he's probably pointing to the well, drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Woman, we're talking about two different types of living water. I'm not talking about a stream, a spring, the bubbly water that you think that I'm talking about. We're talking about two different types of water. The water that you're drinking from here will will, will only leave you thirsty again. You'll keep having to come back here to get more. But what I'm offering you, Jesus is saying, is a, a, a drink, a water that will quench your thirst forever. You see, woman, lady, you, you have been trying to, to get answers to this life, okay, by doing different things and trying to find out the answers to life. Jesus is saying, what I'm giving you is the answer to life, the answer. It's nothing else. It's black and white. It's plain as day. There's no other option. There's no other answer to life than me. And it's an incredible offer to this woman. And she's, she's intrigued. And she's in. She's like, yeah, I want that. She sold on it. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I think she doesn't quite understand. <laughs> she's still not entirely sure the, the metaphor and, and what he's actually saying, but she's intrigued and she wants it. She knows that she's in. She's got enough information and she wants to be in on it. And that's a lot of times where we can stop with Christianity, isn't it? Where we come to church and we hear about the gospel and that Jesus died for us and we can accept him into our life and get eternal life, all that good stuff, and that's powerful and amazing. And we just say, bow your head, close your eyes, say a little prayer, believe and confess, and man, that's it. And a lot of times in our modern day American church, we can stop right there. And it's because we want the promise of God without actually wanting the life of God. And we stop and we say, I'm good. I got enough information. I know enough to just get the promise of God. And I'm not really sure about the life that God wants for me. But Jesus can't stop there with this woman. And Jesus isn't going to stop there with you today. So he told her there's something he had to do. Jesus had to do this today. He said, go and call your husband and come back. (laughs) I don't understand this question. It's crazy. You're just talking about eternal life, living water, but go get your husband to come back. I have no husband, she replied. Well, that's embarrassing, Jesus. You blew that one, right? If you ever see Jesus is wrong in the Bible, keep reading. I'm sure he's not wrong because my bet is is, is he's not wrong. And, and Jesus can do this. He's the only person in history that can do this, okay? Walk up to a woman and say, oh, when do you do? Well, I'm not pregnant. Yes, you are. <laughs> Like, we cannot get away with that. And my wife is pregnant. We're due in two and a half weeks. We're going to have a baby boy. And, yeah, and I want, one time I wanted her to say, oh, what do you do? I wanted her to look and say, I'm not pregnant, just to see the person's face. But she wouldn't do it. She's too good of a soul. I would, I would have been playing that card all the time. Anyhow, Jesus is the only person who can get away with that. He says, go get your husband and come back. It's like a timeshare presentation, right? I need both of you here. Take about an hour and a half. We'll go through it all. If you buy in, you'll get living water. No, that's not what it's about. So this question baffles me that he would ask to go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. 
You're right, Jesus says in the next verse. He says, Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. I told you he wasn't wrong. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you are now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. <laughs> Jesus read her mail. <laughs> he literally he knows everything about this woman, her past, her decisions, the mistakes, and the mess of a life that she has kind of had because of the five and now the sixth man that she's been with in her life. And now we know why she doesn't like going to the well (laughs) with the other women. Because she's well known in the community about what she's done and who she's done it with. She's been the news source so many times. And that's why she's at the well at noon. Because she's avoiding someone's, the whole entire village. She's avoiding her past. She's avoiding the things and the mistakes and the failures and the upsets and the hardship that she's had in her past. She just wants to bury it and go on with her life and never have to face it or talk about it again. It's why she's at the well at noon. It's what she wants to avoid at all costs. People finding out about her, talking about it, and being the tabloid headline once again. And my bet is, whatever God, whatever you're trying to avoid in your life, Whatever you're trying to bury, whatever you're trying to not talk about and overcome is the same thing God wants to do with you today, like he did with this woman. The same thing you're avoiding at all costs, that you're shoving down, burying, and not going to bring it up, hope no one ever finds out about, is the same thing God's saying, no, we got to get this out right here, right now, in your life. Because the things that he does with people back then is the same thing he wants to do in you and I's life today. And we're about to find out why. This woman had to deal with this past. We're about to find out why. So she hears that Jesus says, or she hears that Jesus read her mail and she gets a little freaked out. Okay. This happens a lot with us. And when somebody kind of finds out something about us, we kind of freak out and we do what she does. She says this in verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Obviously you are a prophet because you know things about me that you should not know otherwise. Obviously God gave you some, some insight there. Our ancestors worship on this mountain. She gets totally religious. It's weird. Our ancestors worship on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in, in Jerusalem. Okay, I'm a little lost here. I don't get why she just defaulted to talking about places of worship and getting all defensive when he found out about her. And it's what we do, right? When somebody finds out about our past or the bad things that we've done or the bad things that have happened to us, and they kind of seem shameful or guilty, and it just it's kind of mucky and dirty and all that, our past. And somebody finds out, we go, yeah, I've been thinking about going back to church. You know, I probably should probably go check that church out, and I probably need to get my life figured out. You know, we do the same thing, don't we? When people find out about the bad things, the hard things, the horrible things that we've done or been done to us, we instantly can kind of default to the religious excuse, I need to get back to church. And we especially do this when we know that the person who found out is a pastor or a minister, right? This happens to me all the time, okay, on the receiving end, because I'm a pastor here at the Vineyard Church. I meet somebody, I'm having a conversation, and they ask me what I do, and I want to bite my lip and say, I don't want to tell you. I don't want to tell you I'm a pastor, because as soon as I tell you I'm a pastor, the conversation is going two ways. Number one, they're going, oh, yeah, I go to this church. Okay, listen, I'm not recruiting you. If you talk to a pastor or minister in public, he's not trying to recruit you to his church, okay? Let it go. The second thing, what they'll do is they'll say, yeah, I go to church here. I used to go to church here. And the conversation automatically goes religious when they find out that I am a pastor, a.k.a. a religious leader in the community. It's crazy how we do that. So stop doing that. (laughs) Stop doing that. 
I just want to be normal and have a conversation with you. And it, can't, it shouldn't be dependent on whether I am a pastor or not. So this woman tries to get religious. But I don't have time to go there about religion and getting stuck in religion or getting unstuck from religion. Chris Figueroa, our lead pastor, next week is going to talk about how we can get unstuck from playing church. This woman tried to play the church card, play the religious card, and Jesus has nothing to do with it. Come back next week to learn how we can get unstuck from church. But this week, we have to get unstuck from our past. This week, we have to get unstuck from the guilt and the shame and the baggage and the skeletons in our closet that are robbing us from the future and the life that Jesus wants for us. Your Father in heaven, God, your creator that made you has a life for you that is so good, but you're letting your past, the things in your past, the guilt and the shame that you're carrying, rob you from that joy, rob you from that peace, rob you from that satisfaction that he wants to bestow upon you if you would just deal with your past. It's what he has to do today. It's what he has to do in this woman's life. Stop playing church, man. Stop using the religious excuse. That's next week. Jesus replies, verse 21, women, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. His reply to this religious excuse is amazing. I love it. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come. You should underline that and remember that. It is now. Right now in that, in that time with that woman is now. It is now, right now is in this place. The time has come now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. <laughs> Look, if you think you're going to find God at church, you're not. God is not at church only. He's here. But he's not only here. He'll be with you wherever you go. He's everywhere in creation, the mountains, the nature, your job, your family. He is everywhere and wants to be with you everywhere. It's not just about a place, a building, a campus, a church service, a gathering of people. True worshipers don't just come to church. True worshipers worship God in their spirit and in their truth. Don't miss that. And here's what God wants. He wants true worshipers. He wants real worshipers, not just Sunday church attenders. He says it three times here. Worship in spirit and in truth. It's a big deal. And it's why Jesus can't let this woman go with just a prayer. It's why I can't let you go with just a prayer. It's why we have to understand what's at stake here. Because you're going to go back to a life (laughs) that you're living, and it's going to remind you that you don't deserve Jesus. It's going to remind you that you are unworthy of the gift of salvation and the gift of grace that he's offering you. Your life, when you go back and you let your past and those thoughts and those temptations, it's just going to rob you and think that you are unworthy, unlovable, unable to actually be in a relationship with God. So we can't just stop with a prayer. We've got to do more than that. Because you know what you've done. You know who you are. You know your past. You know your story. And if you don't deal with it, man, it's going to rob you of what God wants to do in your future. And I don't care how many days you sit in church, you can't get over your past with a prayer. The memories are still there. The people that hurt you or you hurt them in that relationship, they're probably still alive. They're probably still some way, shape, and form tied into your life. They're still there. A prayer is not going to get you over that. Attending church isn't going to get you over your past. It's what Jesus had to do. It's what he wants to do with you today. Unless you come out with the truth, you're simply going to be robbed 
of your future. You're going to be robbed of being a true worshiper of God. And then when we try to worship God, when, when we haven't dealt with our past, and then we try to worship God, man, we're just faking it. Think about it for a second. Maybe some of you, you know, you feel like your relationship's really trucking with God, man, firing all cylinders, and you feel good. You've been coming to church. You've got a small group. You're praying, reading the Word. You feel like you're growing, man. It's going well. And all of a sudden, one of the temptations that you struggle with in your past happens in your life because it's going to happen, and it just derails you. Because you haven't quite come to grips with who you used to be and the way you used to think and the things you used to do with your body and with yourself, with substances and people, gratifying yourself. You haven't quite dealt with your past with Jesus yet. And that temptation that's coming when you feel like you're doing well with your relationship will derail you and take you 10 steps back. You see, you're just faking trying to be a worshiper unless you've really dealt with your past. Some of you might be, you know, sitting here in church and one of those worship songs, man, just gives you the tingles. You know what I'm talking about? And you kind of maybe want to start raising your hands and praising and worship. A little voice in the back of your head says, well, the people behind you will see you. And they used to know who you were in college. Um, I'm just not going to do it. Right? You're worried about what happened in the past is robbing you of your worship, your submission, the ability to connect with your father in a deeper, intimate relationship because of what other people might say or think about your past. Because you haven't dealt with your past. You haven't come to grips with your past. It's the truth about you, who you used to be, what you've done, what's been done to you that has to be dealt with. And lady at the well, we're getting it out right here. You've had five husbands. The man you're currently living with is not your husband. It's probably somebody else's husband. That's my, that's my thought. You have made a mess of your life. You have a past and a story, man, that is robbing you. You are avoiding everybody and everything. You can't actually live your life to the fullest because you haven't dealt with your past. She gives another religious excuse here in verse 25. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. (laughs) This thing isn't for me right now, okay? When the Messiah comes, when when, when things kind of change or my circumstance in my life gets a little bit different, uh, then then I'll believe or then I'll start living the way that I'm supposed to live. Then I'll meet, then I'll face my past. We do the same thing, right? Maybe some of you or you know somebody is like, yeah, that stuff's not for me now. I'll wait till I'm older. You know, it doesn't really apply to my life. It's not really convenient for me right now. You know, but the thing is, is you never know. So you can't really wait. It's kind of a crazy excuse. But we do that. Not for me right now. The other excuse that we give is, I don't know enough. Some of you are like, I don't know enough. The Bible's too confusing, man. And this thing's overwhelming. It just seems crazy. I just don't know enough. When I know more, then I'll start to believe. Then I'll start to implement what the Bible says into my life. So we got to cut that out too. those excuses of one claiming it's not for you at this time because it is because you never know what happens tomorrow. And then you might not know enough. Guess what, people? You're never going to know enough. (laughs) People have spent their entire life dedicated to studying scripture and they're still division. You're never going to have absolute understanding this side of heaven. And that's okay. So embrace that. Say, it's okay. I'm not going to know everything, but I know enough. I know what the core is. I know what Jesus is asking me. And he's asking me to deal with my past. And I wonder if Jesus ever had to bite his lip because she just said, hey, the Messiah's coming. He is the Messiah. He's right in front of her. I wonder if he's got this grin on his face like, man, if you just knew I'm right here. And it's crazy to me. I was researching a little bit and you might want to dispute me. That's cool. We can talk and dispute. But I believe this is the first time Jesus from his mouth is verbally going to say and claim that he is the Messiah. Now, why would he reveal his identity verbally for the first time to this woman? 
We're about to see in a moment. So significant that he would do this. He says this. Then Jesus declared, I am the one speaking to you. I am he. I am the Messiah. He says it from his mouth. Now, there's two ways to take this. Number one, the first way we can take this. Jesus, over and over and over again, claims to be the Messiah. We see it screaming out through the entire New Testament. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am the one that's going to save everybody from their sins. The long-awaited-for Savior that time has been dated after. You know, the person that everybody in religion has ever been talking about. Like, this Messiah, could he be? He's claiming to be that. So either he is that and we accept that he is the Messiah or he's just some crazy lunatic liar that's off his rocker making some absurd claims, right? But if he was a crazy lunatic liar, how did he actually come back from the dead and pull off Easter? Why do we date time after him? Why do we actually go back to this, this Bible and read it over and over and over again trying to learn more about this man, okay? So what are you gonna do with these claims? I am the Messiah, the one who can save you or am I just some crazy lunatic liar? He needs to either be Lord of your life, because if he's not Lord of your life, he's just an option in your life. And when you make him just an option in your life, man, you're missing out on everything. Because it's all or nothing. He's the one way, the one truth, the one life. No one else comes to the Father. For all religions, all people, all races, all all ethnicities, he's the only way. And he wants to be Lord of your life. He has to be Lord of your life. You have to deal with your past and who you were, and what happened to you, so that you can move forward. So what are we doing with these claims? What are we doing with these claims? Do we accept him as Lord, or is he just an option? Just maybe when it's more convenient for me. Maybe when I get my life together. Maybe when I figure a little bit out more, I can choose that option. No. Today, what he wants to do with you is deal with your past, and he wants to be Lord of your life. That's how you get unstuck. Then leaving her water jar... Oh, no, sorry. Jesus and his disciples returned. They went off to get some food in the beginning of the story. They're coming back. Jesus and disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? You see, the disciples know that this shouldn't happen. They come back. They, they, you know, they, they went to get some food. They went to McDonald's because it was Sunday and Chick-fil-A was closed. So they were so frustrated. They had to settle for a Big Mac and fries. They're coming back with a Big Mac and fries. And they're like, oh, boy. That's, a, that's Jesus with one of those half-breeds. That's Jesus with a Samaritan woman. That's a rabbi with a woman in public having a conversation. The disciples do not know where to put this. They know it's wrong spiritually, culturally, societally. So many different things have been broken down in this barrier. And I could just see the disciples eating their fries and Big Mac like, well, somebody should tell him he's wrong. <laughs> like, does he not know? He's Jesus. Of course he knows. And no one can tell him he's wrong because he's Jesus. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. They know this shouldn't happen, but Jesus doesn't care. It's what Jesus had to do that day in that woman's life. And I believe it's what he has to do in your life today. So then the woman leaving her water jar, she went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of town and made their way toward him. It's crazy what's about to happen in this woman's life. Verse 31 through 38 is a cool little story, some passage about how Jesus and his disciples got in an argument about eating food and whatever. It's a cool story. You can read it on your own, but I'm going to get down to the meat here. Verse 39, many Samaritans from the town believed in him, excuse me, because of the woman's testimony. Testimony means story. Because of the woman's words, because of her story, because of her testimony, many of the Samaritans from the town believed. He told me everything I ever did, she said. When the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. 
And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. The very thing she was avoiding her entire life was tired of being the news headline is the same exact thing that she went and screamed it off the rooftops to that entire village for them to come and find Christ. I believe that's why Jesus had to reveal his identity to her because he wanted to use her as an incredible tool, an incredible message of his saving grace to this entire Samaritan village. And I believe the same thing is true in your life. Whatever you've done, whatever you've been through, the guilt and the shame and the baggage that you are carrying is the very thing that Jesus wants to use as the greatest tool in your life to set you free and set people free around you that you interact with. That is why he had to go. That's why he had to meet this woman so that she could deal with her past. And the village says, hey, stay with us. For two days, Jesus stays. And then the the people of the village said, hey, we don't believe now just because of this woman's testimony. We now have our own testimony. We now have our own story. We now have our own encounter with the Savior of the world, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's incredible. It's an incredible story. One of my favorites. The very thing she was avoiding and running from is the very thing that God used. Your worst nightmare the thing that you don't want anybody else to know. Let me ask you this question. If there was one thing in your life that if you had to stand up here and tell this room, you would never come back to this room. One thing in your life can be big or small. There's one thing that we probably all have done or have experienced that we don't want people to know about because if they knew, we'd rather just avoid them. That thing, maybe one, maybe five, whatever, is the very thing or things that Jesus wants to transform from a fear (laughs) something holding you captive, setting you free and used as a tool to reach people with the gospel. I now understand this passage. I've heard this story so many times and never really knew what it meant. I now know what this passage means and how it relates to my life. I want to share with you some things I've learned practically. It's in your program if you want to follow along. There's some blanks you can fill in. The first thing we got to understand, it's time to face the music, folks. It's time to own up because not dealing with our past robs us of our future. Our failure to face our past and talk about our past and embrace our past and just accept our past is robbing you from the joy, the peace, and the contentment and satisfaction God has for you. I never experienced those things, and I grew up as a Christian my entire life. I played church for a long time, folks, a long time. I never experienced I wanted those things. I wanted the joy. I wanted the peace. I wanted the contentment and satisfaction that I knew Jesus was promising me but I wasn't willing to deal with my past. And it wasn't until one Sunday, I kind of walked to the back here and I got some, I talked to somebody in the back and man, I just felt like I was able then to go head to head with my past and not let it define me and hold me back from my future. So not dealing with the past robs us of our future. So how do we deal with it practically? Number one, we have to face the truth. Last week, Julie talked about naming it and claiming it. This is the name portion. Name your past. Name who was in your past, the relationships that were broken and hurting in your past, the things that you have done and been done to you in your past. Name it, okay? You can't outrun your past. You ever notice that? You ever try to outrun your past? Your past will eventually catch up to you. (laughs) It's part of who you are, 
right? You might try to avoid and change careers and change geographical locations to get away from your past, but I guarantee it'll follow you some way, shape, or form. It's coming back, and it's going to haunt you if you don't actually name it. Second thing you have to do is you have to accept the truth. Just accepting it as truth is huge. And, and you might think, well, facing it and accepting it are the same thing. No, accepting it is saying, I was that. That is how I thought. Myron, that is how Myron thought. That is how Myron gratified himself with women in college. That is how Myron gratified himself with things of this world. That's how Myron was playing church, being fake, not actually living out the life he was called to live. I could go on and on and on, people, about the things I was faking and playing and, and, and being very hypocritical about. You see... I have to accept that that is the way that I thought. That is the way that I was gratifying myself. That is the way that I talked. That is the way that I had desires and thoughts. And I'm okay with that now because I know that I don't, I'm not defined by it. I don't carry the guilt and the shame of that. I'm forgiven by grace through faith. I am set free from those things. I don't forget those things. And now I get to use those as a story, as a testimony when I sit down with teenagers or when I sit down with somebody one-on-one and I can say, man, this is what I've been through and this is how I've overcome it. And the same is true for you. If you can embrace, face, and accept your past, the truth about who you were, you can be set free. The final thing you have to do to cap it all off is you have to accept grace, not guilt. You have to accept the grace of God. You are unworthy of the grace of God. You are undeserving of the grace of God, but he said, no, I'm giving it to you as a free gift because I love you that much. And we can walk in the grace, not in the guilt of our life. We can walk in the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the joy of God, the peace of God, if we will just embrace, accept, and not hide our past. You see, how to move forward, our past will be Satan's greatest weapon or God's most powerful tool. The things in your closet that you tried to bury, guess what? You buried them alive. It's like the horror movies, the zombie movies. They're ripping themselves out of the ground. It's coming back. Your past is coming back. Don't try to bury it alive. Get it out because if you don't get it out and get right with God with it, it'll haunt you. And it'll be, it'll be Satan's greatest tool to rob you of the true worship, <laughs> the true worship that God wants you to have with him. And then it can be God's greatest, most powerful tool in your life for freedom in yourself and freedom in those around you. Are you willing to own it? Accept the grace, walk in that grace, and let God use your story as an incredible tool to reach people with the gospel. You have a choice. It's what he had to do with this woman. I believe it's what he has to do with you today. And I can't tell you how many times I sat in church, even this church when I was coming here, and, and felt the prompting of God to say, yeah, I probably should go talk to somebody in the back or get prayer and just walk out the doors as fast as I can. Time and time and time again, I did that. But then one Sunday, I said, enough is enough. And I stopped and I had a conversation. And in that moment, I was able to truly be set free from my past, man. So my challenge and encouragement to you is you can walk out of here. And that's fine. That's, all, that's on you. But if you feel that nudge, man, and you want to get right, and you want to have the joy, peace, and contentment of God, stop in the back, pray with somebody, face your past, and let God start to use your testimony as a tool for his advancement of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace. God, I thank you that you do save us from our sin. And Father, I thank you that you do remove the guilt and shame of our past, that it doesn't define who we are. And Father, I pray that anyone feeling that tug today would, would go talk to somebody, would start to uncover their past, start to talk about their past, start to be forgiven from their past. 
so they can start having the future and the life that you want them to have. So, Father, help us use our past as a tool for you and no longer a weapon for the enemy. We face it. We accept it, Lord. And and let us accept your grace and walk in the freedom that you have for us. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.